What is your superpower? Um, do you curse on this podcast? Go for it. Um, my superpower is um, I'm out of fucks. <laughs> That's my superpower. Jamel Hill was my friend in my head when she was doing his and hers in the afternoon on ESPN with Michael Smith. I loved that little show, and I admired the way the two of them worked together to make TV magic. They had great chemistry. And when Jamel and Michael moved up to doing the 6 p.m. Sports Center, she became a national icon. Their promotion was like a victory for the culture. But the show struggled almost from the beginning, and then she tweeted that Trump was a white supremacist, which is like saying water is wet, but... Trump attacked her, and Sarah Sanders came out and demanded she be fired. I want both of them fired, so how about that? But ESPN did not like being in politics, and things got messy. Jamel ended up leaving with a big old bag and going to the Atlantic to write essays about politics and going to Spotify to do a hot podcast called Unbothered. And she's got even more projects going on, and she's gotten engaged. She's living her best life. And with more Q rating and more success... She's only gotten more humble, more cool, and more lovable. That's why she's here. It's Jamel Hill on Toure Show. Can I ask you about your wedding plans? Of course. What's going on? Um, well, we do have a date. Uh, we have all the important decisions made. So uh, have a venue. It's going to be out in, in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, wedding planning is kind of the last thing I'd ever want to do, and <laughs> which is why we have a you're wedding planner. That, you're not that bride book No, girl. I'm the anti-bride bride. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not into, I could care less about a table design, like colors, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> like, I'm is just there like, a theme? Yeah, what it's else? like, so what? You know, okay. but... um. Yeah, we're we're looking forward to it. Uh, a celebration, obviously, with our you know friends and family, and of course, now that I'm in this process, um, you realize. I mean, I've heard people talk about how expensive weddings are, mm. right? And I was like, yep, knew they were gonna it was gonna be expensive, but the expense of it is one thing. What really pisses you off is the the cost in there you never anticipated. Oh, like, yeah. for example, I did not know that you are also charged to cut the wedding cake. I'm like... <laughs> Wait, they, you sell you the cake and then we charge you... Correct, to cut, to cut it. Well, how else are we, are we supposed to per eat person, hands? Per person. What? It's six bucks per person. And I was uh. like, wait, wait. So I could just get one of my aunties with a knife and she could just... If you go to the florist and say, I want some flowers versus I want some flowers for my wedding, right? that costs triple, quadruple. Oh, like, uh, it's the same flowers. More than a few people told me that... I should, when I book the venue, that we should say it's for a family reunion and not for a wedding. And you will notice the cost. And I was like, come on, y'all. I mean, I know, I, look, so I ain't that real. far removed from the hood, but it's just like. How many people? 175. That's a big wedding. That's considered a medium now. Really? That ain't super size anymore. That is, wow. Big is like 250 and up. Really? Yes. That's a lot. And, it's, and the number is 175. Wow. Okay. Wow. And, um. You know, both of us are from Detroit. We both went to Michigan State, and we knew, uh, and this is no certainly no disrespect to the city. It's all about sort of access people have to you. We knew we could never have this wedding in Detroit because it, that is <laughs> inviting much. 600 people, all kind of uncles I ain't never heard of, True. like showing up because we're having our engagement party in Detroit, and it's already been some shenanigans <laughs> where 
I'm just wondering why do people not understand the concept of a plus one? You cannot scratch off the one and add three names. Like that's not how that works. All right, people. It's like you and another person, and that's it. Part of what is exciting. This is old boy. Yeah, this is old boy. So you, I mean, you've been talking about him for so long. So it's part of the Jamel sort of universe that you've been. You know, we know she eats crazy stuff and she loves sports and she's all about Detroit and Michigan and old boy. Michigan State. Michigan Get that State. right. Well, I mean, Michigan State, on, the state, the state. All right. You know, Pistons, <laughs> like, not university Tigers, though. like yeah. all of it, Spartan, all of it. Yeah. But like, yeah, old boy has been something you've been mentioning back from his and hers. Yeah. Right. That is correct. Uh, Mike, uh, my former co-host, Michael Smith and good friend, he was the one who gave him the nickname, oh boy. Because <laughs> uh, both Mike and I uh are fans of Sex in the City, right? And so, you know, for a long time, it was Mr. Big. Mr. Big. So he was like the black Mr. Big. Right. Much less money, but the black, <laughs> the black Mr. Big. Good living is not, you know, multimillionaire times a thousand uh, Mr. Big. So, and besides, you know, what you find out of if you're sort of a, you know, public figure to some degree is that, you know, you can handle the scrutiny and the, the criticism and the attention and all that, but the people in your life don't sign up for that. And so it was also sort of a, a way of me protecting his identity, if you will. Because sure. I tagged him in like one or two photos and it just, things went haywire just in terms of, because uh, uh, his pages were private and he were, he was getting like thousands of requests and, you know, I was like, well, you, you know, you didn't sign up for this. So No, I mean, since he met, I mean, when he met you, right, when you started, you were a nice media figure. Right? Yes. And while you're correct. dating, you became this national icon. And that has an effect on him and it right and, and an effect on his life. It does. And we see the effect of that with our wedding and that we get a sense from um, people that I think they're thinking that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are going to be here. And I hate to disappoint everybody. It's like LeBron's going to be there. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Him and Savannah right at the front table. But I do, but people think this is like a celebrity wedding. I'm like, well, if celebrity counts, my aunt who been singing in the church choir for 22 years, then yes, then that's the celebrity that you're going to get. Right. So it's sort of, uh, it's odd in that sense. And And then the fact that there's just, um, you know, interest in that. I mean, when I posted the photos of us getting engaged, I mean, it, it got like, you know, 120,000 comments, which yeah. was so. So the, int- you know, the interest that people have in just us as, as a couple, we kind of are are amused at it. And while we were um, dating, whenever, uh, you know, we would make the sort of the gossip blogs, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> Love you for the whole old boy thing. Uh but like, you know, the professional husband. I mean, you and Michael were just peanut butter and jelly. You were, and I've had several female co-hosts like Road Dogs who I loved. But I would look at you guys and be like, man, like that is the dream to be with somebody who just fits you and you could argue in a really great way and you would bond and be together for each other. I really admired the pairing that you had and that you were able to keep it going through both. I mean, that never happens, right? right? To be able to keep it going through multiple iterations. What made Jamel and Michael work so well? We were definitely relationship TV goals. Um, And I think uh, (laughs) we were, yeah. I think what helped us was the fact that we were friends before that and we were going to be friends after that. Now there are some TV pairs, uh, TV or radio pairs where they were not friends before and are not friends after. And the chemistry mm-hmm. is still amazing. Um, you know, like Mike and Mike on, on ESPN, they were never friends before they started doing radio together. 
and uh, in talking with both of them, as their families had gotten to know each other over the years and everything, they have a good relationship. But at least the impression that I always got from them, it was never one of those things that after Mike and Mike was over that they were going to ride out in the sunset together and, you know, go get steak dinners or whatever. With Mike and I, it was different. It was, we were really good friends before. We had parallel careers. We were were each other's sounding boards and mentors in many respects. And we just brought that to television. And so we still talk now. Um, and granted, it's a little different because I'm living in L.A. and he's still in Connecticut. So we uh, we're, we were accustomed to, I mean, we were seeing each other every single day and talking on the phone probably every single day for four years, right? So we don't communicate quite that frequently as we, as we did but before. But the bond's still there. But we still, the bond's still there. We still talk, um, you know, frequently enough. And, yeah, so I think that was the root of it. And we just had a lot of respect for each other. And I think it's hard in sports television to find... One, you don't usually find a man and woman paired together in the way that we were. Right. We were equals in every sense. Right. Okay. We both had. The woman is always the subordinate. Correct. Yeah, and mean, she's there to tee up the man and ask him for his opinion. I mean, when I look at Stephen A. and was it a Max's show, mm-hmm. and she's just there. Yeah, the Molly Caron. Yeah. yeah. And but and that's the role that that has been for whoever's the moderator of First Take has been that way practically sure. forever. But we were coming together to do a discussion show where the weight was equal. And right. when we did his and hers, we're both anchoring, we're both opining. We did Sports Center, we're both anchoring, we're both opining. And our backgrounds have very equal and similar credibility. He covered the Patriots. Um, I covered college football and basketball for six years, covered the NBA, the NFL. Same, you know, we have very similar paths through newspapers, through major national newspapers. I was a columnist. You know, he was an NFL writer and, and reporter for many years. for hip-hop culture as well. Correct. And, um, you know, even though my taste in movies is much better than Mike's, <laughs> the, the fact is that there were certain cultural vibe that we had. But I think it did, it did boil down to the respect. We never went into discussions. Even if we disagreed, I wasn't trying to show him up. Right. He wasn't trying to show me up. Right. It wasn't about embarrassing each other. Because, um, like, on first take, for example, and this is no knock on them because they have an extremely successful show. Yep. And, you know, Stephen A is probably the face of ESPN now. But yeah. that's more competitive debating. Yes. Where you are supposed to show up the other person. Yeah. And we were never like that, even though we had some, you know, really outstanding discussions and were on opposite sides about a lot of things. Um, as Mike used to say all the time, we were like minded, but we had different opinions. Yeah, and you, you got to have some disagreement. Oh, totally. If we're all just friends and we agree on everything, that's not interesting. But, you know, when we can disagree in an agreeable, yeah. passionate, but honest, authentic way, that is gold. Yeah, because uh, we never wanted it to sound like to people at home that we were debating and being contrarian for the sake of ratings or for the sake of creating some fake drama. It was never that way. So when you guys went to 6 p.m., I cheered. I think a lot of black and brown people cheered like it's a victory for the culture. Oh, my God. I mean, everybody I know was watching it. Um, what happened? Why did it not work? Well, because um, I liked the broadcast that y'all did. It was a lot of reasons. Um, one, there is a much different audience uh, that is at 6 p.m. than it is at noon. We were on on his and hers from noon to one. And we were on ESPN2, which at the time had been branded as the commentary network. So you had First Take, you had Mike and Mike, you had us, 
And at one point, it was Sports Nation and uh, Dan Lebertard's show. We were all right. one concurrent block. So people knew what to expect when they went there. I'm going to hear opinion, hot takes, fun stuff. That's what it is. Six o'clock, that's the evening news of sports. Right. Um, audience wants highlights. Audience wants, you know, results, scores. Problem is, it's six o'clock. What am I showing you? What am I showing you that you haven't seen? seen You've already seen it all day. Correct. You might throw me to the game that's coming up, but that's it. There's nothing to report. I mean, yeah, there's some day baseball, but to be frank, nine days out of ten, day day baseball wasn't that interesting. Right. Enough to build an entire show around or build, you know, multiple segments around. Four o'clock game is not over. No, I mean it was it was nothing. So that was a challenge we knew about going in, and it was why. The ratings at 6 p.m. had, they had, you know, kind of been um, on the downward turn for years. That started before that, we got it. That, got slot, that was slot was troubled was, already. It was troubled already. And it had become more of a discussion kind of sports center. Well, we wanted to, like, really get crazy and just say, well, let's just, you know, we'll show you video that's important and pertinent. But we're not going to base this show off highlights because that's just crazy to do. And so, um, you know, what y'all had been doing. No, precisely. So we brought the elements of his and hers. And, um, you know, the the thing was, it was we actually didn't even want to call it Sports Center. We wanted to call it his and hers. Oh, you No, we did just not because we were I mean, we were attached to it because it was part of uh, kind of the foundation of who we were. But mostly because we wanted the audience to know what they were getting. If you say Sports Center. People are going to expect Sports Center. It's just the way it works. It yeah. doesn't matter what time it's on. I mean, for the most part, Sports Center is the same thing, whether it's Rich, Stu, Scott, whoever sitting in the it's, chair. It's a formula. It's the same thing, and you guys did it differently. We did. It's a formula that's worked for, for 30 years. It's a legacy brand. So that was um, there was positives and negatives to that because when you're dealing with an audience that comes in with the expectation – even if you want to change the expectation, it takes time. Yeah. And we, um, there was a lot of creative infighting uh, going on as we tried to figure out on the fly what the show is. Um, this is, I'm, and I want people to understand, I'm not giving you excuses. I'm giving you reasons. Right. All right. right. And so, because uh, I realize as a paid professional broadcaster, you know, um, there are some people who look at it and say that was an abject failure. I don't look at it that way, but I. You know, I'm not here to debate anybody who does think that way. You look at it as what? I look at it as a, a as a learning experience that, frankly, has a lot to do with why I operate the the way that I operate in this part of my career. Um, because creatively, when things aren't right from the beginning, there is no fighting through that, right? For the most part, at least from what I've seen. You Maybe, didn't have the right concept, so it's not ever going to work. And not just the right concept. It's just I think we... We had a team that was a bit mismatched. Uh, they were used to producing Sports Center, um, and that Sports Center was used to being Sports Center, and we wanted to not be Sports Center. So there was going to be automatic tension there, and much like we've seen happen with uh, NFL teams or sports teams in general, we were sort of drafted to be the for- the franchise quarterbacks. And then halfway through the experiment, uh, the coach and GM get fired, and they want you to run a new offense. Right. We're like, oh, but we like the read option. They're like, no, no, run this pro style. We're like, oh, we, we didn't get in this to run this pro style. And so we had a significant leadership change that happened probably about five or six months in. Right. And 
uh, this was a leadership change where had that leadership been in place from the beginning, they would have never chosen Mike and I. Right. And that's no knock against them, but I think they had a right. different concept of what sports center should be. And we could not really get on the same page. And I know that it is, I'm not saying that the Donald Trump stuff, the controversy didn't have anything to do with the reason I chose to leave SportsCenter. It just made it easier for sure. me to leave SportsCenter. But you were already... But I was already unhappy. And I already knew that when the time was up where I didn't have to do that show, I was not going to do that show and I was not going to look back. Because since I stepped into ESPN from day one, I had been used to giving my opinion and used to driving shows with my opinion. And we started off on SportsCenter infusing our opinion, also giving you the news, but they wanted more of a traditional sports center where we just tee up other people, we tell you what's happening, and that's it. And all the things I think that made Mike and I special were slowly over time taking, taken out of the show. Yeah. And so because of that, it just really didn't make much sense for me to do it anymore because if that would have been on the table when they initially came to us and asked us to do sports center, I don't think either one of us ever would have done it. For a lot of us, the institution that we are working with uh, means a lot, right? And for a lot of us, that determines whether it's a good job or not. And when you're a lifelong sports journalist, right, ESPN is the best place to be. Or one of, uh, So when you're saying, I don't want to be here anymore, but I'm going to continue to be a sports journalist, is that hard to say like i'm going to step down from mount olympus and not like you know because this is the place for sports and, and i'm leaving and especially sports center when you look at some of the anchors that have held those seats um as you mentioned Stuart scott rich mm. eisen keith overman dan patrick i mean you know it, chris it's berman. chris berman it's been keith a overman. yeah it's been a legacy of of really uh amazing names that have held it and uh, i think you know sports center was their dream sports center wasn't my dream okay. and I know for, and I still get this now, people think I was fired off Sports Center or they kicked me off. I was like, you don't know what that contract said, <laughs> okay? <laughs> they couldn't kick me off, all right? I chose to leave because I would rather leave a situation than come into work and be unhappy every day. And um, so, and I, and I miss writing. I miss, it was all these conversations that were taking place in sports from Colin Kaepernick um, to, you know, other social justice issues. Uh, you know, player uh, health issues, player fairness, uh, you know, the pay equity gap between male and female athletes. All these conversations were taking place. And I felt like I was missing out on all of them because I was stuck at a desk telling you, you know, who won the day baseball games. And I feel like I'm just totally like crapping on day baseball. But like I love baseball, but still, you know, it's, it's just like I just felt like I was missing out place was afraid to talk about politics it's just that um it's it, no i wouldn't say that uh, i think sometimes it's the way you do it and you know realistically a six o'clock sports center you can't build a whole show around that right. and you can talk about it in pockets and you know certainly like the larry nasser trial sentencing like we we talked about some stuff yeah. and had those discussions but those discussions weren't being necessarily led by us and based off what we thought it was based off whatever expert we brought in to talk about it. And, and it's not the same, not right? we used to from y'all. Correct. And so I just really felt like um, I needed to be back in on um, what to me was from a, you know, from, from a, not just a reporting standpoint, but from a conversation standpoint, 
was a really compelling time in sports. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I want to give a shout out to the underwear that I'm wearing right now. The company that's been supporting Toray Show for a long time, Saks Underwear. They've got fantastic underwear with great styles and great protection for a man. They've got this ballpark pouch in their underwear that just takes care of you and keeps you in place. And look, you want to put on underwear, say, oh, it looks good, and then not think about it the rest of the day. That's what Saks gives you. I put it on. I feel good. I don't think about it. It doesn't ride up. It takes care of me. And I can go on doing whatever I got to do throughout the day. I want you to try Saks underwear. So I got a deal with them. $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use the promo code TORE at checkout. T-O-U-R-E at checkout for $5 off 
some awesome Saks underwear. Go to SaxUnderwear.com, that's S-A-X-X underwear.com, and use the promo code TORE and get $5 off of the best underwear you could possibly find. You were on a beloved show in terms of his and hers, and quite often when you are loved and you go to a show that doesn't work out, that costs you some of your love, your likability, or whatever. You emerge from the six, which did not work out, more popular than you were when you went in. How did you do that? Well, it does help a little bit when the when the president says you should be fired. That does help, okay? Um, so I think it was a fascination kind of with me that developed off of off of that story. And there was a curiosity because, as you said, people don't leave the 6 o'clock sports center. And um, I think, you know, people sort of wondered, like, who would be making this decision and why? And some of the commentary that I, you know, had about uh, various, you know, racial and, and social issues that were connected to sports. I think it was all of that. And, you know, I just, um, again, I know that for a lot of people it seems really crazy but it is why when I tell younger journalists to bet on, bet on themselves, I'm not just telling them something that has been told to me. I'm telling them something I've lived. And doing mm-hmm. that, you're definitely betting on yourself. Because if you don't, um, you know, if things don't work out or if you don't, I wouldn't say equal a platform that's on the 6 o'clock sports center because that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. But if you don't put yourself in a good creative space after that, then it makes it it does make it seem like you failed at something and we're never quite able to recover. But I never felt that way. I never regretted it at all. And people ask me even now, do you miss being on TV every day? And I don't. I mean, I really don't. Really? I mean, cuz TV was always I do. <laughs> well, TV was also always something I could take or leave. And um I actually enjoy doing TV more now because I can do it in spots and I can pick where, what I want to do and who I want to do it with and and the, for that matter, the kind of topics that I want to cover. And you don't get that liberty on SportsCenter. Whatever comes in, you got to set the table for whoever is watching. And so now I can be more selective, and I enjoy being selective about it. So, okay, the president has tweeted about you. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, he loves to stand on black people's necks to seem taller to white people. And you are definitely one of those people that he did that to. Um, how does that feel? What is that? What is the impact to you when the president attacks you by name and like people are like, whoa? Well, the impact for me was more surface level. It didn't change how I feel about myself. I don't think I'm a failure because Donald Trump of course. thinks I'm a failure or that I tanked ESPN's rating. I, I mean, considering how how inaccurate he often is and the fact that every time he says that about either a person or a media outlet, it becomes more popular than ever. So in many ways, I was like, I consider it, you know, in a a weird way, kind of a badge of honor that I can join this special club of people that the president (laughs) has decided to, uh, you know, to criticize on Twitter. But um, no, I mean, it just changed. It just changed my um, kind of my world in the sense of uh, my my public profile exploded. There were people who did not know I was on ESPN before that happened who suddenly was like, well, who's this woman that he's tweeting about? And even now there are people who know me as the woman that Donald Trump tweeted and not being a sports journalist. Uh, 
even uh, I guess a third layer of what is taking some getting used to is that people have now pushed me into the activist space, right. which I'm not really an activist. I mean, they're really terrific activists out there doing real work. And that's not to say that I'm not. But, you know, when you're a career journalist, your reporting and your commentary is activism. It's not, you know, me um, organizing marches or petitions or you anything like that. You talked about Trump as a white supremacist. That is not an original idea. What? It's I not know. an outlier idea. It's you not. are not the first person to say I that. Not. I don't know why that got an explosion when, I mean, I've said that on Twitter a hundred times. So I'm telling I, you, know, you, many other people. I don't know why that was a trigger. And that, and you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is the part. In a weird way, it's almost kind of embarrassing. Like, if I'm going to get called out by the president, can it at least be an original take? <laughs> that wasn't new. even a that wasn't even a lukewarm take. No. That was like a barely room temperature take. I'm just like, <laughs> Tanahasi goes and just written an entire piece for the Atlantic laying out the case for why Donald Trump is a white supremacist. Right. I'm like, I don't know. I don't deserve the credit for this at right. all. Right. I think a lot of it had to do with the the who and the what, as in me and representing ESPN. If I were on CNN, it'd be like, all right, today is Wednesday. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. Right. But the fact that this is coming from somebody who's representing a sports network is what made it so for some reason, more fascinating to people. And ESPN was caught up in a couple really dumb narratives at the time. There was this idea that ESPN had lost, you know, had, had caved to the liberals in, within the inner workings of ESPN, and suddenly they were a political network and a liberal network. And this is, you know, a case of um, the inmates are running the asylum, they run <laughs> wild, and the liberals are taking over our ESPN and... So it was that drama as well at a time where both the NFL ratings were on a downturn. Um, ESPN ratings were falling, which is not it was never a the sky is falling issue with that because all of cable television ratings are falling. And the NFL was, hey, when you put bad games on a bad product on TV, that's what happens. As much as they would love to have um, assigned the blame to Colin Kaepernick, that's really what it was, right? So it was like all these narratives happening at once. And then, you know, I sort of come along with my commentary and it just kind of lights the fire on the power kick, on the powder kick. So you wrote about Kaepernick for the Atlantic. Did he win? I think he definitely won. And but he sacri- at the sacrifice of his career. Yeah, but that was going to happen whether he took him to court or not. I mean, nothing lasts forever. But no. you train all your life to become an NFL quarterback. You get there, you're doing well, and then it's snatched away from you. There's what, like a good four or five years that he could have had? Oh, easily. I mean, he wasn't even 30 when uh, he got his deal in, in San Francisco, the big deal. That was, I think the total of the contract was worth like $125 million. But when I say that that was going to happen anyway, meaning if he sues or doesn't sue, he had played his last down in the NFL, all right? that He was not going to be a quarterback there anymore. Even if he didn't kneel, he wasn't going to get another job? Well, I, I mean, if he, as long as the fact that he had knelt, one, and a lot of, I think, of the, a lot of the NFL owners blamed him for the negative headlines. They blamed him for the ratings. That that was very real to them. The the backlash and the fan base, people claiming allegedly they weren't watching football because of the kneeling that they didn't even see for most of the games anyway. That had some that left a strong impression 
the fact that the president was coming after the league and coming after him repeatedly uh, at these marches. That's when Donald Trump said it after he was president and he was at the rally. I think it might have been Alabama. Um, and he uh, went off on Colin Kaepernick. That's when I knew Colin Kaepernick was never going to play again. But how did Colin win? He won in this regard. The NFL has a very long history of just absolutely fleecing and pounding people in court. For the NFL to settle speaks volumes. Remember, Tom Brady, face of the league, could not beat the NFL in court. All right? He had to sit down. You know, and he is that guy. He's the golden child of the NFL, and he had to take that four-game suspension. He got tired of fighting them. When they started this case, I think the NFL thought it was laughable, that he would never win, it would never go that far. But when that arbitrator ruled that they could keep going and he had enough evidence to present his case in court, the NFL got scared because of, obviously, what could be discovered in evidence and what was available in evidence. Already some of the reports of those behind-the-closed-doors meetings had come out. Um, that's when you uh, got the report about the Texans owners saying that calling uh, mm-hmm. uh, the NFL, calling his, you know, his team and NFL players inmates. Mm-hmm. That's when that happened. The NFL didn't want any of that because, let's be honest, I'm sure there is some owners that probably said something that was probably racist that sent a text message or email, Don't and that was going to— Donald Sterling, well, NBA. Well, I mean, still, he's, he, he, yes, I know he's the yeah. owner of the Clippers, but that mentality, that mentality, absolutely. is pervasive in the NFL as well. Just in some of the things that Jerry Jones has said leading up to that, where he's talking about how he would cut or bench any player that kneeled. So mm-hmm. they didn't want any of that because the, you know, the NFL, they, they're not worried about actually being racist; they're worried about looking racist, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Everybody. I know where the, the, look. It's, and, it's and, and, and that, so much worse to be called a racist than to actually be, and that is commit racism. I, I I talked to somebody who had done research on white people and racism, and in private spaces when it's just white people, and somebody says something racist, if it is police, and it is usually not, what somebody is saying to the other person is, "Don't say that. Not don't feel like that, but don't say that. You can't say that." Which is them saying. You can't say racist things, not you can't be racist. Right. I'm not saying all white people are not policing racism, but that is what the data is showing that in private spaces they're saying, don't, just don't say anything. Right. Like you, it's okay to harbor that sentiment and that thought, but right. don't speak it. Don't right? speak it. And so I, that was why the NFL decided to settle. And I know we don't know the amount, and I know a lot of people um, are disappointed in Colin because I think they wanted the NFL to face some public comeuppance. Because Did you, yeah, didn't you want him to keep going and have that trial? Well, that they here's didn't want? here's the thing: is that um, if he takes the, if he continues with the trial, and he loses, and then the people that I mean, look, the detractors were going to be they were going to say whatever they were going to say, whether he settled one or not. But I, I think if you're him and you think about the origins of this case, and it wasn't just him, but but Eric Reed, you think that them having to admit that they had to settle with you is probably, I mean, that is a victory most people who take the NFL to court will take. I mean, again, Maurice Claret took the NFL to court. Like, it's such a long list of people that have taken the NFL to court and have come out worse because of it that this was really, to me, an incredible scenario um, and a stunning reversal on the NFL's part that they, I'm sure, that it still rubs them the wrong way. And it was funny because a lot of people thought, after this, like, oh, that means Colin Kaepernick will get his job back. No, he was never getting his job back. 
That's never going to happen. You think a guy they just had to write a check for for that? That they're just like, okay, it's all good now. Like, right, no. come play for us. No, right. that wasn't the point. It was a, a labor issue. And, um, you know, the NFL, I think they'll forever pay for the sin of what they did to Colin Kaepernick. Is it surprising that nobody said, well, you know, he's better than the guy we got. So he'll help us win more games. So let's give him a shot. Now, um, as somebody who is in, as well-versed and has the historical <laughs> reference points that you do and your whole toolbox there, since when has racism cared about what right. it cost? Right. It has never done that. Even it has. Be- but you think there's a meritocracy in sports. We can see he's better than him. So let's put like. It's it's kind of like with Hollywood, right? It's it's that Hollywood is acting like in the last since post Black Panther that black people just start going to movies, right, right? Right. And no matter how many successful black movies, they were all looked as individual successes. Right. Even though right. in your mind, from a business standpoint, wow, what if I make a movie with representation? That means more people will come and see it. Right. Easiest business model in the world. Hollywood's like, nah, we're going to get these white people out here and y'all just going to have to go see them. All right? <laughs> Black Panther makes, you know, billions of dollars, makes a billion dollars. They're like, oh, my God, black people go to movies. Yes. Wow. We've been going to movies. Even more so, people in China will watch black people? What? Whoa. What? Mind-blowing. <laughs> right? They're only, cons- you know, hip-hop is only the number one consumed music genre in the world. Right. Somehow, somehow music figured it out, but like Hollywood didn't. <laughs> Men are never uh, more aggressive uh, media critics than when a woman starts talking about sports, right? When Doris Burke gets on the NBA Finals, there's all kind of chirping about she doesn't know what she's talking about, da, 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 da. whoever it is. And Jackie McMullen gets out there, all sorts of, and you see it on Twitter, you see it. I never hear it about you. Right, the guys, even in private spaces, have always respected you. Would at you least. like a tour of my mentions? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you get hate. Yeah, every, I, I'm, I know, but can you talk about if the if you see a difference, how you have been able to get that respect? Well, um, I think it comes and it goes. Um, much, you know how sports fans are. When you agree with them, they think you're a genius. When you don't, then it's like, go you're back to the kitchen, right? right? right. <laughs> like, for right. me, it's go back to the kitchen. Right. And I'm like, if y'all knew what I cooked, you wouldn't tell me to go there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just jokes. I got about five good dishes. Anyway, um, no, I mean, it, it's it's something that all women in this profession have to really deal with. And because sports is considered to be this sort of last bastion of maleness and masculinity. And how dare we women invade it uh, by coming into a man's world and tell other men uh, their perspective on sports. Because, I, look, I've gotten the, but you never played. And how can you compensate on football? You never played it. Meanwhile, I used to have this running joke with Mike on the show all the time uh, that I used to say to him sometimes on air. I was like, well, I know... One of us at this desk started off all four years in high school, and one of us was riding the bench, and it wasn't me. <laughs> I just did the best with him about that because he was a backup quarterback. And I, I played fast pitch softball, and I, and I started every year in high school. What was your position? Uh, shortstop. Nice. And um, so anyway, I say all that to say is that, like, there are plenty of male commentators who, you know, would get winded running around this table that Damn. we're talking on right now, but their athleticism is never considered to be linked to their ability to discuss the sport. And somehow for women, it's our ability to play the sport or just our genitalia period is considered to be 
um, a reason to eliminate us from sports com- conversations. You know, meanwhile, it's like men are free to commentate on whatever sports uh, that they like, men whether they play them, they are. to know about sports. They are. You want to know immediately, well, what does Jamel know? And how does she know it? And where did she get this information? But you didn't ask anybody else where they got their information. How do you... How do you get past that? Do you like just kick it out of your mind and just do your thing, or like how do you get? Well, past? I, I think a lot of it comes with age and experience. All of us, no matter what we do, and especially if you're a woman, you literally. But it does apply to people in general. But I'll just, in particular, highlight women. You get to a point where you just don't care anymore about proving yourself to people whose minds weren't going to be changed anyway. Okay. So as I got more experience. Um, got more reps, got more comfortable in my opinion. Um, I really didn't care anymore about those, you know, small faction of idiots who felt like I couldn't talk about sports just because I was a woman or didn't belong there. And that was kind of that. And especially knowing that they're very fickle in their beliefs because trust me, uh, you know, if you're a... What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals... Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is mostly secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tinderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, a Kobe fan, and I say something critical about Kobe, and you tell me to go write for Cosmo, the moment I say something that you love about Kobe, you're going to think I'm the greatest thing ever. Right. So I know that most of it is just coming from a place of meanness and sports fans just being in their feelings about their favorite teams and, and players. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've told other women who want to be in this profession or making their way in this profession is that you do, if you're, especially if you're going to get into commentary, it's almost like they say that, you know, you you should dance like nobody's watching. Mm. Well, you need to be able to write and give your opinion or be on TV with the same mentality. Because the moment you start caring about how people are going to react to what you're saying, you're going to be pretty bad at your job. One thing I notice in the sports media ecosystem, it seems that there is more <clears throat> animosity from the media toward the players than in any other 
relationship, right? Political journalists don't look down on politicians. But there's this subtext of, hmm, they're just pituitary cases or they're just big and athletic and they have millions of dollars and hot women and you were like JV basketball <laughs> riding the pine and you're short and you're like, mm. you know, right? There's sort of this aggressive sort of like looking down at the players, right? Do you do you see that? Well, the difference. Um, with... And I see that, of course, from the white male journalist, yeah. not from the black and brown journalist. Well, the, the difference, I think, you use politics as an example, okay? In politics, you have mostly white reporters covering people that look like them for the most part, mostly other white people. Right. So there is not quite the same undercurrent of jealousy, plus the nature of the job of a politician is, frankly, to be held accountable. And mm-hmm. so that is sort of makes that dynamic but a little bit. you feel bit. like the politician has earned his or her spot by being elected, perhaps by getting a law degree, whatever, the athlete fell into this by being big or tall or fast or whatever. They just hit the genetic lottery. They hit the genetic lottery. That's, I think, how a lot of people who cover sports kind of look at it. But you're also talking about, a ra- like, as you pointed out, there's a racial dynamic there. You, you have, at, at this point, I think, in, in sports journalism, um, strictly in, in, in print media, uh, print sports media, you have 85% of the sports jobs are held by white men, mm-hmm. right? There was, uh, I remember looking at this as I gave a talk at a journalism school a, a few months ago, that there are 15 female columnists and all 15 of them are at ESPN, mm. right? So uh, I don't know, I cannot speak to what's happening in the rest of the, but when we're talking about daily, um, daily newspapers and ESPN, like when you take out, ESPN, it's a very sad, um, not very diverse picture. ESPN has all the diversity, all the columnists, you know, all the black and brown people. Like, they have a monopoly on it. And I know the lazier thinkers will say, well, that's because it's ESPN and they can pay better. No, it's because it's, I mean, this is not, I have no um, reason to shield for a company I don't work for anymore, but that was always a priority. And while they may have some advantages in terms of recruiting, that there's no excuse why, say, uh, even though this isn't the case, but there would be no excuse why the Washington Post or New York or any of these other papers would not have better representation on their staff, but yet that is the case. So if the picture of the people covering athletes, especially in the in the major sports of pro football, pro basketball, and even college football and college basketball, if the majority of people you cover are culturally different than you, it's going to lead to some assumptions, some stereotypes, um, yes. that undercurrent of jealousy, because mm-hmm. you're talking about people who are covering millionaires. Right. You're, right. you're a millionaire, but I'm smarter than you. Yeah. What's wrong with this picture? Well, I think it's just a familiar, unfortunate trope in sports that has always and will always be attached to black athletes. Because white athletes, there is a difference. Um, you know, white athletes, even now in 2019, are celebrated more for being intellectual. Mm. You know, um, we, we've we seen it, or heard it, I should say, a thousand times, where they refer to a white player as scrappy. Thought, thoughtful. Thoughtful, scrappy. Intellectual. You know, high basketball IQ. IQ, IQ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. We are natural. Yes, everything right? is. Instinctive. Na- everything is natural. Everything's instinctive. And. It, what happens is because of that, fans adopt that attitude, mm-hmm. too. And so they begin to look at the players, not that 
You know, they don't think about the considerable amount of work that it takes to do this. It's a reason why only 1% of this population can be a professional athlete or becomes one. The level of dedication at work that it takes to be one is something most people cannot even begin to comprehend, and yet they treat black athletes as if everything comes easy to them. And I remember, what was it, in the 80s, and Isaiah Thomas said this about Larry Bird. Mm. Um, Now, you know, the, or, or the the origination of it was that Dennis Rodman was actually the first person to say it when the Pistons and Celtics were in a heated playoff series, Eastern Conference Finals, uh, I think it was 87, 86 or 87. And Dennis Rodman said that if Larry Bird was black, he'd just be another player, right? They asked Isaiah about it, and he backed his teammate. And the hatred, I mean, the Pistons were already hated, but that just – Took it to another level. It did. It was a huge, huge deal. It was a huge deal. And then when Brent Musburger was asked about it, um, uh, Brent Musburger asked Isaiah Thomas about it in more detail. He explained he wasn't trying to denigrate Larry Bird. He was just trying to make the point that he works just as hard as Larry Bird. He feels like he has, you know, the same intellectual um, uh, the same high IQ that he's bringing to the game, but he's never credited for that. Right. It's just like, oh, look at him. He's little and quick. Right. You know, that's what right. it is. Right. Whereas, you know, and Larry got that fame and that shine. Totally. I mean, it's totally. He was totally the the white savior. You know, one thing I see, too, that really, really bothers me. A lot of sports media asks questions that presumes that they are super important. Like you did, especially in a New York or an L.A. Con, right. You didn't steal second there because you were afraid the back page would kill you <laughs> on the next day. You know, or you didn't substitute this player for that player because you were afraid of what the media would say. And I'm like, are the coaches and players really in crunch time thinking, oh, God, they're going to roast me tomorrow on First Take or the New York Post or whatever it is. So let like you, you do you think that's really happening? I don't know if they're thinking it in the moment, but I'll say this. Any athlete, any coach that says, he doesn't read his, the press clippings, or I don't pay attention to that stuff, is a liar. Right. They pay attention. Yeah. Because it's funny. <laughs> I used to always think this was hilarious when I would go into a locker room, is you would hear them say that all the time, and then we don't care what the media thinks, we're not reading your stories, and this and that. And as soon as you go in there, they can quote back everything that you wrote right. in your story. Right, right. Um, But and, they're not making decisions on the court of well, the field based I on think, that. I, th- I don't know if coaches or players do, like, in the moment, again. But I think organizations definitely do, where they make decisions. Well, de- sure. Yeah, when, when they make decisions to sign certain players, do certain things, some of it is them trying to hide things that they are doing from the media. So while I would never over-inflate the importance, you know, of the media in a, in a, in a daily, in the daily life of an athlete, but they care. And especially what's really interesting is how social media has really changed that because you're dealing, you know, looking at some of the younger athletes, they really care. They really care about how they're perceived. And we see blips of this all the time. Um, you know, some a lot of people look at Kevin Durant. Um, I think Kevin Durant is is fascinating and interesting, and very thoughtful. But Kevin Durant clearly does care about what the media thinks about him. Right. And so I don't think that's a knock on him, but it would be hard if you're his generation of athlete not to care, because they're so used to like they grew up in social media. 
I'm just, I just, I didn't, most of my life has been without it. So I know what that life is like. And I'm, and it's like, all right, big deal. This is just another adaptation I have to learn. But these guys now, I mean, they, they have a much different concept of, of caring about what people think. The truly special ones don't, but there are far more that do. Well, there's so much that's available to them off the court if they are successful in these ways you're talking about. So it, it, it matters, right? There's a lot of influence and power and money that can be made if I am beloved in this other way. And keep in mind the media, um, in, for most of the you know, pro leagues, the media votes on their awards, which are right. tied to bonuses that right. they get or don't get. Or even like in the NBA, which is really crazy, um, whether or not you're voted second team or first team, all NBA can be the difference of 40 or $50 million depending on your contract because there's language in there about um, the t- like if you make all NBA or second team, which is voted on by the media. So yes, they care what the media thinks. Wow. <laughs> wow. You had a tweet once that, but the question was a general question out to people. What is something that people would not expect about your job? Do you remember this? Yeah, and, I do. And you said sports reporters sometimes find the games boring. Oh, that we don't care about the outcome. That's what you said, yeah. right? That you don't care. Don't what care. do you What do you mean? What do you What do you mean? Well, by that, I, I think fans perceive us to be just like them. That we care about if a team wins a championship or not. We may care, but the reasons we may care are way different. It's not because we care about them as a team. It's that it may be a difference between you getting a book deal. It may be the bit difference between you get on a bunch of talk shows or your own radio show because you're covering a team that's hot. And everybody's interested in what's happening with that like team. The career of Brian Winterhorse, correct? Right? He's had a fantastic or career, look, staying close to the Look at all the 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 beat writers and columnists covering the Warriors. I mm-hmm. mean, these last five years have been amazing for them. Mm-hmm. You know, my boy Marcus Thompson. I mean, he's got two books out now on the Warriors. You know, he did one on Steph, and I think he's doing one or has one out on KD. That doesn't happen unless they're champions, right? Right. right, right so right. we care from that standpoint, yes. But this idea that we care about the result is not true. We we care about what gets us home fast. That's what we care about. You want a narrative. Yes, we want a story. But, I mean, I, every time there's, like, a multiple or, uh, overtime game like it was in that Portland-Denver game, I immediately feel sorry for the writers who are there and are on deadline, who have probably blown past their deadline, covering a game to, like, 2 in the morning. It's like, you know. And I know that it may come off sounding very ungrateful to some degree because there are people – because this is what it also helped me realize with that tweet is the number of people in this country who are in jobs they don't like. Mm. And where we are very fortunate and blessed is that even though after a while the games kind of blend together and it's like, wait, who had that buzzer <laughs> beater? I don't even remember. That does happen. And where um, now even some of my friends who aren't sports writers, they are baffled by the fact that I don't like to go to live sporting events. They're like, I don't understand. I was like, yeah, because I've seen a thousand of them. That's why. Like, the best seat is at my house, right? Right, right I can right. drink as much beer as I want, as much wine as I want. <laughs> it isn't $20 for a glass. I'm good, right? But it sounds ungrateful because for most sports fans, they will never get to go to a Super Bowl. They'll never get to go to a World Series. They won't get to go to an Olympics or a World Cup. And so they can't imagine um, somebody doing that for a living and kind of being a curmudgeon about having to go into it but some of it much like with professional athletes 
is that people don't understand the work that you put in to do that. Before I could get to cover two Olympics, I had to cover a bunch of high school games in college and get paid $30 a story, right? So you don't start off in this business covering the Super Bowl. You start off covering high schools. You start off covering a whole bunch of games you don't care about. I mean, my first beat in college was uh, men's wrestling and women's volleyball. Okay. All right? So it's just like that is not glamorous. And I didn't know a whole lot about either one of those sports, and I had to learn on the fly. When I was in high school, I was covering the basketball team for the school paper. And I was friends with the basketball players, at least the the black ones, and they were and they were criticizing the coach. They were they were having like a terrible season. It was like a three and eight, three and nine season, or whatever. And in my recap of the game, I just questioned, perhaps the problem is the coach. I didn't really go in. I think I was a that's, sophomore that's or junior. That is I bold. Even, I didn't even like go in on him. It was just like maybe the problem it was just a, is for, the coach. For instance. For instance. Maybe, <laughs> right? It's just a question. And I wasn't even being snarky. I, I thought this is – and, you know, you can't attack players, right? We don't attack college players. We definitely don't attack high school players. But we can aim those bullets at the co- – oh, my God, I got in so much trouble. Oh my! I, I had to go sit with the principal, and I'm like – what is the problem? Like, I wasn't being rude or mean or trying to break the rules or anything. It was just... That's the reporting. That's I, where it led you. <laughs> right. That's right. I, I, right. I was in with the team, and they were saying, like, look at the coach. And <sighs> that was a long day. <laughs> why am I here? The, I've been here in the principal's office before, but why am I here today? Well, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like people, they don't know about those moments where, I mean, I've been cussed out by coaches before when athletes are very unhappy about what you write. Um you know, How's there's that? How's that feel. Um, you know, it, it is honestly. I think you, at least for me, I was always okay with the confrontations because a lot of times they just want to vent. They don't. It's not that what you wrote was inaccurate, because uh, if something is inaccurate, I've always told any coach or player or anybody I've covered, please tell me because I don't. Sure. You know, that's the part of the job because our credibility is on the line that you have to take very seriously. But if they're just upset because they didn't like the conclusion you drew, okay, you can vent about that. That's not going to make me change my mind. That 0 for 6 didn't happen by itself. <laughs> but <laughs> but the next time you go to criticize somebody, does it make you a little gun shy? Well, my rule, especially on television, because I think TV more so than print is where you have to watch yourself. Because mm-hmm. in print, you have to go in that locker room the next day. So you have to know that if you do come for an athlete or come for a coach, you you – you better have everything lined up and be prepared to defend that piece. Because I was raised on that concept of you write something critical about a guy, go in the locker room the next day, give him his chance to respond. So on TV, because you don't see athletes as often as you would in print and just the adrenaline of TV, you can mess around and say something about somebody that you didn't mean to necessarily say. That's going to come off much differently on television than it would by something that you've written. People are more sensitive. It seems like a bigger platform. They are very sensitive to it. And so my rule used to be, I will not say something about you on TV. I cannot say to your face when I see you. Mm. And so everything I've ever said, I have said to that person's face when I saw him. I, I remember Johnny Manziel, who I used to be super critical of when he was in college. I was like, that whole money fingers thing, let me tell you. <laughs> That's cute now. It's not going to be cute later, and especially if he does not perform up to, you know, that level. And I remember I saw him at an ESPY party, and um, 
I thought he was with Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> and I was talking to, to Colin. I was talking to both of them because I, uh, this is before Colin started kneeling. And he had a very contentious relationship with the San Francisco media. And I noticed, and I said, what's all that about? Because I hope you do know they're going to get the last word, not you. Like, they're going to get the last word. So, I mean, you can play that us against the world thing all you want. But, like, no. And I'm not saying that you have to, you know, develop or or, or develop relationships with people who you feel like have really characterized you unfairly. What I am saying is that what's going to be put out there more often than not, that if you are surly doing a press conference or this and that, like, that's the stuff that people are going to see. Um, so just, you know, that's something you probably want to keep in mind. And with Johnny, you know, I I said the same thing I've been saying to him on air. You know, I was like, dude, you just do so much, so much. And that was even before half the stuff <laughs> that we found out he was into got mm, out there. So but it was but it was yeah, fine. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've had athletes in those situations who have been like, man, why did you say that about me? I was like, well, well. perhaps you shouldn't drop three passes in a game. And maybe I won't. <laughs> what, what is your superpower? Um. Do you curse on this podcast? Go for it. Um, my superpower is um, I'm out of fucks. <laughs> That's my superpower. <laughs> that is very empowering, though. Yeah, it is. No, and and that that is a big reason why I couldn't name my podcast No Fucks Given because I just marketing wise, I wouldn't go for that. I probably wouldn't go over. But if you're going to be a black woman in sports, that is the attitude that I don't care. I'm going to spit my game. I know me. I know I know what I'm talking about. I don't care if you don't want me to talk. That is that's the space of, of, of where I am. I mean, this is probably the most creative freedom I've ever had in my career. And that combined with having the, you know, experience and the savvy and a collection of 21 years in this business. I'm just out of fuck. So I'm just like, yeah, so my superpower is so what? <laughs> okay. You're going to get these takes and these jokes whether you like it or not. And that's kind of where I am right now. And it's a very, you know, liberating feeling because there's so much in our society where just, I mean, you know, black people are policed literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. That's just how it is. And there is a lot of mental fatigue that comes with that. And so um, I do feel very grateful to be in a space while I know there are people who will still police me, me not giving a shit about whether or not they police me. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, I, that's why a, a big reason why I feel like my best work is like honestly ahead of me. Thanks to Jamel Hill for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torrey Show gives you that fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and maybe this show can help. I'm on Instagram at Torrey Show and on Twitter at Torrey. Please write a review of the show. Really appreciate it. Torrey Show is written by me, Torrey, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from awesome people because the man can't shut us down.